from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, big business and sports entities are threatening to punish states that won't adopt their woke agenda. But many of these same entities are in league with communist China. Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn is challenging the woke, tweeting out, quote, how many of these CEOs that are so concerned that Georgia requires ID to vote are also sponsoring hashtag genocide games in communist China next winter? Senator Blackburn joins us in just a moment. And... While I believe in the efficacy of the vaccine enough to get it myself and encourage Iowans to do the same, I also respect that it's a personal choice. But I strongly oppose vaccine passports, and I believe that we must take a stand as a state against them, which I uh, intend to do either through legislation or executive action. Was Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds joining the growing chorus of Republican governors who are making clear They will have no part of a vaccine passport. But will they keep big business from mandating a passport for customers? We'll talk with Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts. Also, here is a refreshing headline. Listen up. Governor calls on State Board of Education to scrap politicized sex education standards. We'll talk with that governor. It just happens to be Governor Pete Ricketts. And I mentioned this yesterday. A report by the Foundation for Government Accountability reveals the partisan results in Arizona of Mark Zuckerberg's $350 million given to the Center for Tech and Civic Life for voter education. Trevor Carlson, a senior research fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability, is here with more later on Washington Watch. Another night of rioting and violence in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, after Dante Wright was accidentally shot while fleeing in his car as police tried to arrest him. The mayor of Brooklyn Center, who fired the city manager and has taken emergency control of the police department, and is now calling for the 26-year veteran officer involved in the shooting to be fired. Now, is there a connection between a historic surge in violence across the U.S. over the last year and politicians refusing to support law enforcement. We'll take a look at the numbers. The numbers don't lie. We'll take a look at the numbers, which show the single largest surge in murder since the FBI began publishing the data. We'll talk with former Baltimore Deputy Police Commissioner Jason Johnson. Later here on Washington Watch, you won't want to miss that conversation. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Gab, it's at Tony underscore Perkins. And, you know, with social media, you never know who's going to be canceled. So I want you to stay in touch with us. Text the word STAND to 67742. The word STAND to 67742. That way you can stay connected with us. Uh, We can give you updates on national alerts, events, and resources. Now, message sends vary. Messages and data rates may apply. Reply stop to cancel. Help for help. Makes sense. Uh, visit frc.org slash terms, uh, slash text, rather, for terms and conditions of our privacy policy. Also, I want to encourage you to download the Stand Firm app. It's in the App Store, and it's on Google Play. All right. In a veiled warning to state legislatures that have been working to protect women's sports, the NCAA Their top governing body, the Board of Governors, issued a statement yesterday saying the NCAA championship should only be held in locations where hosts can, quote, 
commit to providing an environment that is safe, healthy, and free of discrimination, end quote. Now, what does that mean? Well, in leading up to this, the board said it firmly and unequivocally supports the participation of transgender athletes at all levels of sports. That means they support biological men competing against women. With me now to talk about this latest push to punish states that won't embrace their woke agenda is U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, which is one of the four states that have already passed legislation to protect women's sports. Senator, welcome back to the program. Good to join you, and thank you for putting attention on this topic of how we're going to protect young women in sports and allow them to compete and, Tony, allow them to excel. This is, I mean, obviously we have different opinions and we, we, we reach consensus through our policy, but we see now big business, we see these sports entities threatening to punish states by pulling events, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's, I've never seen this type of activism by business and these sports entities. The activism by businesses is just astounding. You know, if you want to say the country is equally divided between conservative and liberal or progressive, then yes. But why would these companies be choosing to shun half the country? And that is that is what they're doing. Why would they be choosing to put biological females at a disadvantage when it comes to sports competition. And it is terribly disturbing to see this kind of activism. Uh, People were very disappointed with the MLB decision. And I have talked to people in Georgia with businesses, minority-owned businesses who are going to be really adversely impacted by that decision. Was that fair to those business owners? Uh, I have so many people that said they appreciated the PGA playing golf this, this past weekend, the Masters, and allowing these small businesses to be there, allowing the community to be there and to participate and to benefit from having that event in their community. I I want to read from the NCAA Board of Governors statement that they released yesterday on this. Um, So the NCAA Board of Governors firmly and unequivocally supports the opportunity for transgender student athletes to compete in college sports. This commitment, this is the part I want you to respond to, this commitment is grounded in our values of inclusion and fair competition. How can that be fair competition? Well, it is not fair competition for girls. And look at the number of female athletes, women that have had a career in sports. Uh, This has been their career, and they have spoken out against this. Uh, Look at the parents and the coaches that we are hearing from that continue to say, this is not right to have a biological male who has declared that they uh, identify, self-identify as female, compete against them in sporting events. This is something that we should all say this is not right. And these biological females 
deserve the right to be able to compete and to excel. Uh, Senator Blackburn, this is just one aspect of this uh, debate that is raging with uh, business and uh, these sports entities weighing in. I want to play a clip of President Biden. You mentioned uh, the Major League Baseball. Uh, he, in an interview on March 31st, he said, look, I support the professional players for wanting to pull out of Georgia. Listen to this clip. Uh, clip number one, please. I think today's professional athletes are acting incredibly responsibly. I would strongly support them doing that. People look to them. They're leaders. Now, I, I want to play another clip because you have brought very um, clear attention to this issue that I'm going to bring up here. This is a, another clip, uh, but this is of the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki responding to a question about whether or not the Biden administration continues to support the Beijing Olympics. Uh, clip three, please. Our position on the 2022 Olympics uh, has not changed. We have not discussed and are not discussing any joint boycott with allies and partners. We, of course, consult closely with allies and partners at all levels uh, to define our common concerns and establish a shared approach. But there's no discussion underway of a change in our plans regarding the Beijing Olympics from the United States point of view. So we can't go to Georgia, but we can go to Beijing. Uh, we can go to Beijing and we can consult with our allies and partners. How about consulting with the U.S. Senate, with the U.S. House? How about consulting with the American people? I can tell you this for sure. Tennesseans do not want to see us going to Beijing and participating in the Olympics there, knowing that Beijing is going to be spying on all of our teams the whole time that they are there, knowing that the Olympic Committee is having uniforms made in Xinjiang province where genocide is being carried out against the Uyghurs, knowing that some of these American companies that have licensed sporting uh, equipment and clothing are having it made in Xinjiang province. So is are we going to listen more to the Chinese Communist Party? Are we going to say enough is enough? Our athletes deserve better than this. Let's look for a way to allow competition. Let's encourage our allies to come for the Freedom Games or the American Games or something else other than going into Beijing. I think this is the wrong message to send. Look, the Chinese Communist Party has been very clear. What they would like to do is become the world leader in the 21st century. By the time you get to 2040, that is their goal. They want to do away with the nuclear family. They want to do away with organized religion. Why? Because that is all a part of Marxist theology. This is the Chinese Communist Party. They are not our friend. And why should we be competing there and having our athletes there in Beijing? 
You made reference to this, uh, Senator Blackburn. Not only is the administration speaking out of both sides of his mouth, I mean, you know, can't go to Georgia, pull out of Georgia, but we can go to China where they're killing people. But you've also, uh, you're calling out the CEOs of some of these big American companies that are actually sponsoring the Beijing Olympics. Oh, yes, indeed. And I'm calling them out for saying they're going to be boycotting Georgia or they're speaking out against the the bill, the election reform bill in Georgia, and saying that it says and does things that is absolutely incorrect. And it is astounding to me, Tony, that they're doing it and they're getting by. I feel like sending them a copy of the legislation from Georgia and saying, please read this and then apologize. Half of your customers may be on one side of the political divide, and the other half may be on the other side. But companies should be selling products without taking a political position. Uh, the MLB, the NCAA, the PGA, the NFL, the NBA, all of your sporting leagues should do what they're there to do. Absolutely. Play ball. And they need to get out of this and going in and saying, we're going to disenfranchise all the people of Georgia. We're going to disenfranchise all the people of somewhere else. You're absolutely and, right. And uh, to be pay, paying that much attention to something that is factually incorrect and making decisions on it and then doubling down on it, right. I it is not good co- corporate no, government. Just look, if you make widgets, make widgets. Leave the uh, the policies yeah. and politics to uh, to someone else. Senator Marsha Blackburn, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. As always, great to hear from you, and we appreciate your clear, clear position on the issues. Thank you. All right, folks, don't go away. Governor Ricketts from Nebraska is next. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. 
To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. Uh, we welcome our new viewers from his channel. Welcome to the growing family of Washington Watch listeners and viewers. All right, President Biden announced last week that every adult 18 or older in every part of the country will be eligible for a COVID vaccine, uh, vaccination rather, by no later than April the 19th. But the question has been popping up. How do you know if someone has been vaccinated? Well, the Biden administration, uh, some officials have said there will not be a federal mandate that requires those who are vaccinated to have proof of vaccination or a vaccine passport, as they have been called. Uh, and several states are making clear that they won't be mandating them either especially as some local and state officials, including the uh, free state of California, are looking into them. With me now is the governor of one of those states that has gone on record saying no vaccine passports here. Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts. Governor, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for having me on, Tony. I appreciate it. Let me ask you, what are your concerns about uh, government vaccine passport programs or requirements? Well, just on a basic level, any sort of vaccine passport would violate our freedom of movement, our rights to that, certainly violate our privacy with regard to our own health, could be a HIPAA violation. Uh, we also got to remember these are emergency use authorizations. So these are still under that emergency use. They haven't, um, you know, gone through the full FDA process and therefore it really need to be a voluntary uh, program because it is emergency use. So I think for a lot of reasons, a vaccine passport program is a terrible idea. Uh, it's at least for travel with, uh, or anything else within this country. And uh, that's why we said the state of Nebraska would not participate. I wanted to make sure that everybody knew we'd protect their privacy, that if somebody signed up to get a vaccine through the state, that we were gonna make sure that their privacy, their information stayed with us. We were not gonna share it with anybody because I didn't want that to be a barrier for somebody getting the vaccine. And of course, we certainly would discourage anybody else, uh, anybody else in the private sector from trying to create a vaccine passport program. Well, uh, unfortunately, not every state or city that begins with an N is like Nebraska. Uh, I guess I'd have to choose between going to Nebraska and New York. I'll be going to Nebraska. New York uh, City Mayor de Blasio says a vaccine passport could be an important part of our recovery and a part of the solution. What do you say to him? 
Well, again, I would say that for all the reasons I just outlined, it's a bad idea that you're really restricting people. And I got to tell you, I've also had people come up and tell me and say, hey, I can't get a vaccine because of my particular health conditions. If you've got, for example, a, a immunocompromised position, you may not be able to get the vaccine. So what are we supposed to tell those folks that actually can't get the vaccine, that you can't participate in whatever activity we want to have a passport for, whether it's getting on an airplane, getting on a train, going into uh, you know a concert, some sort of event like that? Are we just going to tell those people they're not allowed to participate? Again, I, I think that that's the wrong answer. The uh, right answer is to educate people on why they should get vaccinated and work on getting that done as broadly as possible. And when we get uh, you know enough people vaccinated, that's when the virus won't be able to transmit. That's really how we work our way through this pandemic. Uh, Governor, you mentioned this, uh, that you're going to discourage businesses from requiring it that would uh, de facto a passport requirement to do business with them. Um, any what steps might you take in Nebraska to prohibit companies from requiring proof of vaccine to attend a concert, go into a movie hall or uh, some some other type of transaction? Yeah, it's too late in our legislature to introduce uh, that type of vaccine passport type legislation to prevent that. But one of the things we found is just by coming out ahead of time and setting the expectation, we can really have a big influence. And I'll give you one example. When uh, last summer, the commissioner of education and I came out in July saying it was our expectation that our schools in Nebraska would have in-person classrooms in the fall. What we found is that we got a lot of compliance with that. In fact, I saw one study or one report that showed Nebraska was the number two state for having kids in classrooms right behind Florida. So uh, I think that, you know, when you set that expectation early on, and, and we've certainly seen that here in Nebraska where we've set the expectation that we're not going to support vaccine um, passports. We've seen now the University of Nebraska, the University of Nebraska football team, our state college system, uh, all say that they're not going to require uh, young people to have vaccines to attend classes next fall. Uh, Governor, you mentioned education. I want to transition here because this was a headline that uh, actually I never thought I would see. It's one that I like. It's a headline that says Governor Ricketts calls on State Board of Education to scrap politicized sex education standards. What's happening there in Nebraska? Well, what we had was our State Board of Education, which, by the way, does not report to me. Uh, if they're a separately elected board, uh, they went out and created these health education standards that included sex education. Now, this is something our legislature has in the past specifically said they are not going to do. The legislature has specifically said they don't have to do this. They don't want them to do it. In fact, it's not required by the State Board of Education to pursue this. And they included political activist groups and left out mainstream groups. They did not, for example, talk to the Catholic Conference, which educates about 10% of our kids in the state. They didn't talk to my uh, chief medical officer. They didn't talk to the Public Board of Health. They didn't talk to any of those folks. And they created these standards that basically sexualize our kids. They're teaching things that are age inappropriate, politically sensitive. Some things should be left to the parents, non-scientific based things. And I'll just give you one example of one of the things they're talking about is teaching seventh graders about anal and oral sex. And I'm sorry, but I don't want my 12-year-old, and my 12, my kids are now grown well beyond that, thank goodness, but I, I wouldn't want my 12-year-old being able to taught that in school. That's just not age appropriate. Right. And just an example of how they're sexualizing our kids. Uh, you know, that, that really just steps over the bounds. So we've, I, we've called on them to scrap their uh, standards and called on parents to reach out to our State Board of Education and email them, call them, write them, 
they had a hearing where uh, the opponents of this vastly outnumbered the proponents of it and really asked parents to get involved so that the state board would hear this and really rethink what they're doing. Uh, Governor, uh, Governor, 10 seconds. Where can parents go to get more information, our listeners in Nebraska? Sure, www.education.ne.gov. They can find the survey. It's right there on the homepage. They can fill out the survey. I've done it. And they can list their objections uh, right there. All right. We'll make sure we have a link on our website as well. Governor Pete Ricketts, uh, as always, great to have you on the program. And thanks for what you're doing there in Nebraska. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You have a good one. All right. You too. All right. Don't go away. Coming back on the other side of the break with a look at a report out of Arizona. The money by Mark Zuckerberg, the effects partisan when we look at the $350 million that he poured into the November election for, quote unquote, voter education. Don't go away. We're coming back with more as we take a look at that next here on Washington Watch. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? And this is Washington Watch, the website, TonyPerkins.com. Last week, late last week, Arizona became the first state in the nation to fully ban outside money of billionaires and others from influencing the management and administration of elections. On Friday, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed into law House Bill 2569, one in a series of strong measures Arizona lawmakers have taken to protect election integrity and keep the influence of private money out of Arizona's election system operation. Now, Arizona, as you'll recall, was one of the closest races in the 2020 
presidential election, with Joe Biden getting 1.67 million votes, or 49.4 percent, to win the state's 11 electoral votes, while Trump got 1.66 million votes, or 49.1 percent. Arizona also happened to be the recipient of about $5 million from a left-leaning technology group that funneled $350 million, that was that uh, handled $350 million from Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his wife into select election offices across the country. And the outcome of looking at this suggests it had a partisan outcome. Joining me now is Trevor Carlson, Senior Research Fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability. He spearheaded an investigation on how Zuckerbucks infiltrated and influenced the 2020 Arizona elections. Trevor, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Tony. Good to be, good to be with you. Okay, so uh, what did I miss in that setup? I, I think you covered it pretty well. Um, it's important to know we gave them the moniker Zuckerbucks because the Center for Tech and Civic Life has been around for a while now, but they previously operated in a about a $1.4 million uh, operating budget in 2018, which is the most recent data I was able to come across. And then for the 2020, for the year 2020, uh, they received grants from Zuckerberg, but others as well. Uh, and as re- according to reporting, that was $350 million, which, as you noted, was then distributed to different election jurisdictions across the country intended to be used for the conduct of uh, the 2020 elections. Now, I think uh, in total there's 20, 2,500 different grants given, but let's talk about Arizona because that's where you dug down into it. Uh, where and how was this $5 million used in Arizona? Right. So uh, to be clear, I, I just want to make sure that your audience is, is aware. The, the data we have so far is preliminary, and there's still a lot more research that needs to be done. But a few of the things that we found that were interesting was, uh, you know, Joe Biden won a couple of the counties. The only county he flipped was Maricopa County. And of the counties that, that Joe Biden was able to win in Arizona, uh, four of them, four of the five received grants from CTCL. And uh, in those four counties, Democratic turnout uh, was significantly larger than it was in 2016. And by contrast, in uh, the one county where there were no donations from the Center for Tech and Civic Life, uh, the, the turnout was more, there was more parity in turnout between uh, the Democratic ticket and the Republican ticket, which just has a, a suggestion that there is at least an impact on Democratic turnout as a result of these grants. Uh, Trevor, do we know how that money was used in those counties? That's a great question, and that's one of the reasons why we're exploring this. Transparency is a big issue here. And uh, CTCL has said that they will make these uh, the reports that they require different counties uh, to submit after uh, they were required to submit these reports by January 31st. A number of jurisdictions that I'm aware of have received extensions of, I believe, six months. So some some reports have not yet been submitted. And one of the concerns there is the reporting is overly broad. And CTCL made the point in their uh, in the reporting format, the template, that that was to give those who were uh, submitting the reports flexibility so that they could use their best judgment. Uh, But one of the concerns there is it makes it very difficult for anyone on the outside to understand how the money was was ultimately spent in Arizona. uh, We we know that different counties received different amounts. Um, It's difficult across the country to know which metric CTCL used in order to 
uh, allocate grant amounts. It seems clear from looking at some states uh, in the research that I've done that it's not population based. And so it just raises questions as to what the metrics were. Now, uh, Trevor, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the rationale justification for this outside money coming into elections was the coronavirus and the need for, you know, PPE and all of these other things. But it, it appears that it was used for voter education, voter turnout. That's right. So the the uh, I guess the reason for these grants was that, yes, there was. COVID-19, and different jurisdictions were worried about having enough PPE and resources so that they could conduct a safe election, and therefore they needed additional funding. While some funds were used on PPE in certain jurisdictions, we couldn't find any uh, evidence that PPE was used. And in some of the grant request applications that we've looked at, there was no line item for PPE specifically. That's not to say that it was used for other aspects that weren't necessarily related to COVID-19, but it raises some questions as to if not used for some of the things that many people would view as sort of primary uses with respect to the pandemic, um, what other uses could there have been? And yes, there are some instances, to your point, where the, the funds were used to register more voters, um, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. But then there are questions as to, you know, where were those efforts? Were they targeted in a particular right. and, jurisdiction? And what, and what access of information did they have to do that to target those uh, those voters? You know, it, it would exactly. appear, and we'll know more as you uh, continue your investigation, but it, it appears COVID-19 could have been used to mask a bigger agenda. Uh, Trevor, thanks so much for uh, joining us. We'll leave it there, but we'll revisit with you when you get more information. Glad to be on with you. Thanks so much. All right, folks, don't go away. Coming up next, we're going to be looking at a surge in violent crime and the defunding of police. Is there a connection? Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. 
Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. This is Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Gab, the free speech, free, free, I get it out, free speech platform, it is uh, at Tony underscore Perkins. And also, uh, in this age of deplatforming and the cancel culture, look, to stay in touch with us, let me give you uh, a number to text. Text the word STAND to the number 67742. This is important because that way you can be connected with us. We can let you know what's happening events-wise, legislatively, uh, because we'll know where you live, and you can contact your members of Congress, what area of the country you live in. You can contact your member of Congress. So text the word STAND to 67742. All right. A message and data rates may apply. To reply STOP to cancel. Help for help. Visit frc.org slash text for terms and conditions and our privacy policy. All right, uh, full disclosure for those that may be new to Washington Watch, I spent about 10 years in law enforcement, uh, so I am uh, very familiar with law enforcement, how it works. Um, Also familiar with uh, police brutality. I've spoken out about that. Uh, I've seen both sides of it. Uh, And so I've, you know, I I understand there are bad police uh, from time to time. But I can tell you, the vast majority of the men and women who put on a uniform and put on a badge do so to serve and protect. But there's something happening. There's something happening. Now, you may be watching what's, and and this is a case, uh, this is a a classic case of what we see unfolding right now that has contributed to the bigger picture we're going to talk about in just a moment. Uh, Brooklyn Center Minnesota, a suburb suburb of Minneapolis, saw a second night of protest and riots yesterday in response to the shooting of a black man by a police officer, a 26-year veteran officer, during a traffic stop. The Brooklyn Center Police Chief Tim Gannon told a a news conference Monday that the officer who shot the man meant to use her taser but instead grabbed her gun. Earlier today, both the officer and the police chief has reportedly resigned after the Brooklyn Center City Council recommended yesterday they both be fired. 
Now, the mayor has actually uh, fired the city manager, taken over emergency control of the department, and he, too, was calling for the firing of the officers. Now, during the evening's uh, city council meeting, it also approved a resolution banning its police department from using rubber bullets, tear gas, and uh, kettling as uh, crowd control tactics, as well as chokeholds. Now, these developments come as the nation is seeing a surge in murders that is being attributed to a decline in law enforcement activity. You know, police across the nation are feeling pressured to take a more passive approach as they face a greater risk of being sued, fired, prosecuted for doing their job, or thrown under the bus by politicians. Now, with me now to talk about this troubling trend is Jason Johnson, who served as a law enforcement officer and executive for more than 20 years, formerly with the Baltimore Police Department as a deputy commissioner. He's now with the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund as its president. Jason, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Tony. Good to be with you. Well, let's uh, let's talk about it. You wrote a piece just recently in the USA Today, which uh, certainly caught my attention. I mean, anecdotally, I've been seeing the rise in uh, violent crime across the country, even in my, on my home city of Baton Rouge, uh, which is relatively supportive of law enforcement. But in tracking the FBI's numbers, you have seen a historic rise in murders over the last year. That's right. So murder is the easiest crime stat to track because there's no you can't uh, obfuscate or hide uh, the number of murders that you have in any given jurisdiction. Those have to be reported on a regular basis to the FBI. So uh, my organization, the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund, um, did some research and we looked at the nine months uh, from June to February that preceded the George Floyd riots. And we looked at the same nine month period after the George Floyd riots. What we found is that across the country, murders are up 25% across the board, uh, about 35% in America's largest cities. And in cities that uh, were urging uh, defunding of the police, like uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, murders were up even more, 255%. Uh, so we attribute this to the way that law enforcement has been disempowered, defunded um, across the country as the primary reason and, and with a close second reason uh, being prosecutors who are being elected in cities around the country, largely with the support of George Soros, who, who do not embrace the idea of prosecuting criminals. Uh, they embrace the idea of going after law enforcement officers. And so, as you indicated, uh, Tony, the, the approach by law enforcement is now much more passive, and there's very little active crime preventative policing going on in our cities. And so there, the numbers would show that there is a correlation between police being less aggressive uh, in policing the streets and a rise in violent crime. That's exactly right. Uh, and and we, we know this because we've seen this in other cities at, other, at different periods of time. For example, in 2015 in Baltimore, a city that, that I'm familiar with, in the wake of the Freddie Gray case and, and ensuing riots, uh, there was a significant reduction in this proactive crime preventative policing uh, that went down about 30 percent. There was an immediate rise in homicides, which now are about a 65 percent increase from prior to 2015. We also saw it in Chicago in 2016 when the Chicago Police Department entered into a consent decree with the ACLU, which reduced the ability of Chicago police officers to conduct investigative stops, which are crime preventative and are constitutional 
However, the police department agreed with the ACLU to limit their use, and we saw a spike after that, which is not abated in the city of Chicago. So we know that's the cause, and we're seeing it across the country now. And there's, unfortunately, little to no hope to see those numbers coming down based on the current state of our conversation around policing. Jason, let me add some color to that from what you mentioned. This is from your piece. I just want to share this with people. In fact, folks, you can read this. You go to TonyPerkins.com. Uh, in Baltimore, you, you made uh, the point that over the next 12 months after the charges were later dropped or those uh, charged in the Freddie Gray incident were acquitted, that over the next 12 months, arrests fell 28 percent as shootings jumped and murder rose 55 percent to make Baltimore America's murder capital this year. I mean, if you think about it, here's the men and women who put on the uniform. It's a very dangerous job, become increasingly dangerous with each passing year. Uh, they have families. Uh, a lot of them just want some of them the longer there. The, the veterans like this 26 year veteran uh, in Minnesota, you know, look, they want to do their job. They want to go home to their family and they hope to retire at some point. And when it becomes more dangerous, not just from a practical aspect, physical aspect on the street, but also politically, when you don't have an administration, that will stand behind you. Why? Why? Why risk it? That's exactly right. Uh, officers can do a risk assessment as, as good as anyone can, and it's very clear to them that they will not be backed up by the political leadership or by, in many cases, by the administrations of their police departments. And to add uh, on top of that, it's not just the lack of support, but in some jurisdictions, officers are being uh, officially uh, prohibited from engaging in certain standard police tactics, like identifying people who are committing crimes and holding them accountable. They're being prohibited officially from doing that uh, in Baltimore, again, in the city I'm familiar with, and even though they struggle with record levels of violence, they have been officially prohibited from making a, a wide variety of misdemeanor arrests, including for drugs and prostitution and trespassing and, and for other things. And so it's not just officers acting out of their own self-protection. In many instances, it's officers being disempowered, literally disempowered from making arrests or pursuing charges against people for committing crimes. Well, speaking of being disempowered, you make note of Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who defunded the Portland Police Bureau by $12 million and eliminated three police units. Um, and then, you know, of course, chaos just uh, f- just engulfed that city. And shootings went up, as you point out in your piece, 173%, and murders jumped an astounding 255%. That, that's the most extreme example in the city of Portland. Again, a, an enormous increase in a city that is typically not a violent city, not associated with violence, and now is as a direct result of an effort to defund police. And 20 percent of the police department has left since the since the, the George Floyd riots uh, took off. And so now they're going to have to try to catch up. They're going to have to try to find qualified men and women who are willing to serve in a city that they know they won't be supported by. And they, they're, they're going to have to catch up and reinstitute order. It's going to be a very, very difficult thing to do in the city of Portland and in cities across America. You know, Jason, that's a good point. I mean, you, you, they're kind of in a catch-22 because here they are. They're making it an untenable situation that good men and women who want to serve are probably thinking, oh, I know they are because I've talked to many. I'm thinking twice about becoming police officers. And so what you end up with are those that, are less than desirable entering into the police force, which only creates more problems down the road. 
Tony, you know from having been in law enforcement that historically it's been a very competitive field to get into, that uh, law enforcement agencies have been able to be selective about who they choose. And unfortunately, because of these changing dynamics, you hit the nail on the head that it's going to be much more difficult to find qualified individuals that will be lowering standards. And and, and quite ironically, uh, I think we're going to wind up with a lower caliber of uh, men and women serving in blue. Jason, I mean, this is a I've never seen it like this. I mean, this is, as you said, there there does not appear to be a a light at the end of the tunnel at present, because just as we're witnessing right now in Minnesota, this is uh, the same thing we saw last summer. But when you look at the vast majority of Americans, um, they remain supportive of law enforcement. And, and many of these in these minority communities, I know when I was a police officer, the, the, the grandmothers that were raising uh, the young kids, they wanted to see the police in the communities because they didn't want the, uh, the, the gangbangers, the, the drug runners to, uh, to influence their kids. You know, you're, you're quite right. I, I, I myself served for in two agencies that has uh, a high percentage of African-American population in, in areas that are low income and, and tend to attract more crime. And I found that in those communities, the people supported the police uh, more and more so than uh, what, what I where I see many uh, parts of the academic white uh, woke community, yeah. if you will, uh, who are less supportive now of policing. And they don't and, and they don't have skin in the game, so to speak. They don't face the consequences that are faced in poor communities. That's absolutely that's absolutely uh, absolutely right. So what's the way forward, Jason? What what do, do our listeners across America, what do they need to do to send a message that they don't support this effort to defund police, to uh, back away from the police that we see with so many elected officials right now? Well, we do have quite a bit of information available on our website. It's so policedefense.org, information on officers, individual officers that we are supporting that we think are worthy of support and also information on the studies and papers that we, we've written on various criminal justice topics. But to answer your question, I think, uh, Tony, it, it, we have to get back to the facts. There's so much misinformation out there that is leading people in many communities to think there's an epidemic of police violence. Um, the, the majority of people who self-identify as liberal think that the police uh, shoot and kill over 1,000 unarmed black men per year, when actually that number is actually in, in 2019, it was 12. And so the, 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 the gulf between reality and truth and what information is out there could not be wider. So I think the starting point is we all have to be working from the same facts. And right now that's not where we are, but that would be a great start. I'd love to see the leadership of our country focus more on factual information and having a conversation between both sides of the issue so we can find solutions. Yeah, I, I, that'd be a great start. I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I, I think the media has been one of the worst uh, contributing factors to inflaming this situation uh, of almost anything. Uh, they have uh, not reported it fairly in most cases, and they've just uh, they've stoked uh, the uh, the angst and the anger that's in these communities. Unfortunately, this is a, this you know this is an issue, Tony, that people do not lose interest in, and so uh, out of self-interest, some media organizations do continue to stoke the the flames of discontent and make the situation a situation that is not uh, this is not a uh, a situation that cannot be resolved. We really can get together if we start with the same set of facts, but uh, unfortunately, due to uh, a significant media bias, even that is seems impossible. 
Jason Johnson, thanks so much for joining us today. Great information. Uh, very good piece that you put together in USA Today. I hope a lot of people see it and it gets their attention. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Folks, I would encourage you to read it. Uh, go to TonyPerkins.com. Very short read. But he really encapsulates the situation as we have politicians beating up on the police, throwing them under the bus, refusing to back them up. Look, the police are saying, you know, where do I go? I got the I got, you know, the, the media's against me. We got the politicians against me. I'm just going to do my job and go home. And as a result, the they're not doing aggressive policing. Our streets are not safe. We're setting records with murder. This last year saw the largest spike in murders in one year since they've been keeping the data and releasing it back in the 1960s. This is serious. And uh, we need to be praying about this because violence is one of those characteristics of a nation that is moving in the wrong direction and is in serious trouble. I mean, we see it throughout Scripture. Uh, and, and America has reached that point because we, we've lost the rule of law. We've lost the moral foundation, that moral compass, the respect, f- the, 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 the reverence for God and the respect for our fellow man. It is, a, it is a moral, spiritual issue as much as it is a political and a cultural issue. Well, check it out. Go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. We're about out of time. I want to thank you for joining us and being a part of Washington Watch. Again, uh, you can follow me on Gab at Tony underscore Perkins. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.